this morning, as I said earlier, it's my privilege to continue in our series in Samuel. Uh, We're in this series entitled The Story of the King, and that in general terms simply just means that the Lord himself is authoring all of history, and that you and I are actually actors in his grand story. Believe it or not, our most ordinary circumstances, our most ordinary days are not so ordinary in his economy that he is purposefully measuring our days in, his, in the palm of his hand, and he is writing a beautiful poetry, a beautiful story in and through your life. And so, as part of that journey, we are looking at particular kings of Israel, specifically the kings in, in the book of First and Second Samuel. And this morning, we're looking at Second Samuel, picking up in chapter 2. And just really quickly, the, where we've come in the story uh, you'll remember that Saul, the king of Israel, has died. And so now his son, Ishbosheth, say it with me, it's a tongue twister. Ishbosheth, yeah, that's, it was close. Um, Ishbosheth is the king of Israel now. It's Saul's son, and he is the successor to the throne of Israel. And now, when you see that word Israel in this particular passage, it is referring not to all 12 tribes unified, but actually it's the 11 northern tribes of Israel under Ishbosheth. Because the one remaining tribe is Judah, and Judah has as their king David. So David is in the south over Judah. He has a commander of his army. His name is Joab. And in the north, over the 11 tribes of Israel in the north, is Ishbosheth. And he has his right hand man, his uh, name is Abner, his commander of his army. And they're going to be important characters in this particular section. And I want to just mention to you briefly that there's really a lot of text here. If you've read in your personal worship this week, it's covering a lot of ground. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening too. And if you got a little bit lost in the weeds and that's okay, uh, I want to try my best to sort of break it down. But it's covering from chapter 2, 12 through uh, chapter 4, verse 12. And in that time, you're going to see three cycles, three scenes, if you will. And it's going to repeat a pattern three times. Someone's going to die. There are two brothers who are seeking vengeance. And in the midst of that is this glorious story of our own redemption. And so I don't want you to miss that. If you get nothing else, here's what you're looking for. We are to live in this world of darkness, in this world where people try to achieve success for themselves by way of just force and scheming and treachery. We're to live in this world as those who have a hope in a greater king and in his kingdom. And so with that in mind, let's look at scene one, beginning in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. If you'll turn there, we'll read together that Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim, which is their home base in Israel, to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down the one side, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. So what's going on? Joab and Abner, the two commanders of the army, one of Judah, one of Israel, has proposed a playful, entertaining contest. Think gladiator. Okay, think uh, that show Gladiators. Okay, it's a playful contest, but it is brutal, and it actually has a purpose. It's not just a game. It's not just for their entertainment. 
The purpose of this is to see in their minds the winner of this contest must have the favor of Yahweh and therefore will victor over the other. And so they put it to a contest. They are both sides seeking the unity of Israel, and they put it to this contest to see, well, who's, who's the Lord favoring in this battle? And the Lord gives a rather stark answer, and it's neither of you. No one wins when Israel is divided against Israel. When a house is divided against itself, it cannot stand. And so he says, my kingdom won't be established in this way. And he makes that message, I think, fairly clear in, chapter, in verse 16. It says that each caught his opponent by his head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. And all 24, is the idea, fell together. And there was no decisive winner. There's no clear winner in this battle. And for whatever reason, it escalates into a full-blown battle where we read in verse 17 that it was very fierce, this battle, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David, and the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, who's the commander of the army, and his two brothers, Abishai and Azahel. In the book of Chronicles, an interesting thing, you, you typically read in the Old Testament, it says the son of somebody, Zeruiah. Uh, that it would refer to the father. In this case, it's actually the mother. This is a woman, Zeruiah, is we learn in Chronicles, David's sister, which makes these three men, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel, his nephews. And so it's family, they're, they're brothers in this. And it says that now Azahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. He was a fast and mighty warrior. And Azahel pursued Abner with his two brothers and the army of Judah is the idea of pursuing behind, but Azahel's so fast that he gets there first. And what happens is he, refer, he refuses to turn to the left or to the right. He refuses to relent pursuing Azahel, I mean uh, Abner. And Abner, seeing Azahel pursuing him, he turns and warns him twice, please, let's not do it this way. Turn aside. He warns him a second time, turn aside. Why should we fight like this? And in verse 23, Azahel refused to turn aside. Therefore, in self-defense, after fair warning from Abner, he struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back and he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. Which I thought was a curious detail because Azahel was notably... One of the only things we know about him is that he was fast, and it tells us that everyone who comes to his gravesite now stands still. The mighty man has been fallen with one blow. The man of passion, pursuing Abner, ends up his passions leading to his own destruction. And I think there's something instructive in that for us, that the man who lives according to his passions will die by them, will be destroyed by them. And what happens, if I might summarize the next several verses, is Azahel and his two brothers, Joab and Abishai, were following behind. Now see, uh, these two brothers now see their uh, brother Azahel dead. And they're traumatized by this. And they want to pursue Abner even further. They want to continue what they started. They want to finish this battle and have Abner's head, and they pursue him a little while longer. But ultimately, the battle is called off and they go and retreat to their separate homes. But the pursuit of vengeance continues to fester in these two men's souls. And so while they go off to their separate camps, 
For now, Joab and Abishai lie in wait for an opportunity to exact their justice against Abner. And that's the end of scene one. Lovely, right? It's a beautiful picture. (laughs) People getting stabbed through the stomach and there's treachery, there's deception, there's violence. And the scene ends with Azahel having been struck in the stomach, died, and two brothers seeking vengeance. And so we'll see this pattern again play out now as we look to scene two. Abner joins David in this next moment. He gets fed up with Ishbosheth, the king, and you'll see why. There was a long war, it says, between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And then the following verses simply fill in the details of how it is that David went from strength to strength and Saul's house became weaker and weaker. And what we see is that King David is decisive and strong and yet compassionate, even with his enemies. Meanwhile, Ishbosheth, whose name, by the way, in the Hebrew literally means man of shame, is proven again and again and again to be an ineffective leader, to be a jealous and paranoid king. And so Ishbosheth demonstrates himself to be just like his father Saul. And Abner, the captain of the army, just gets fed up being accused of, as a loyal member of his house, being accused of all kinds of false dealings. And so Abner, from that day forward, decides he's going to seek to put David on the throne of all of Israel. And so he says to David, covenant with me and I'll see to it that the house of Saul is all delivered into your hands. In other words, that you would be the king of all 12 tribes of Israel. And so picking it up in verse 13, we see David's response. David said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, that is you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Isn't that pretty? So a little bit of context. Uh, back in 1 Samuel 18, we read that Michael, who is Saul's daughter, and David fall in love, and they get married. And as they're getting married, part of the rite of, of marriage is that the the groom-to-be would pay a bridal price to the, father's, uh, to the father of the bride. And Saul, wanting at this time to kill David, comes up with this scheme where, you know what, David, I don't want you to give me a payment. What I really want from you is an act of valor, and here's what I want you to do. And thinking in his head that he'll get David killed in this process, he says, why don't you do an act of valor and go slay a hundred Philistines and circumcise them all? And he's going, good luck, see you later. And David goes out. And you know what he does? In 1 Samuel 18, you can read about it. And he goes out and slays not 100 Philistines, but 200 Philistines. And comes back with the bridal price, a double portion, in fact. But then, having covenanted with his wife and paid the bridal price in full... He has to flee from Saul, and he leaves Michael behind. And so now we're reading of this beautiful restoration of David's wife. And so, again, in verse 14, David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. 
And so Ishbosheth sent and took her, that is Michael, from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. Now, I admit that the first time I read this, I was really sympathetic with the character of Michael's husband that's following pitifully behind her, weeping, and then just coldly dismissed by this man of war that just says, go home, stop following what he knew as his wife. And I I really kind of came to the Lord and just meditated on that for, it was days, I just sort of was wrestling with what on earth is going on here, because it seemed significant to me that this is what David's doing in the midst of all this treachery. And as I looked, the Holy Spirit really opened my eyes to see in the midst of all of this treachery and false dealings and violence, the seed of our own redemption, a picture of Christ. Because here's David, compelled by love, to seal a covenant with his bride by the shedding of blood. Having covenanted with his bride, he then goes away for a time to prepare a place for her in his kingdom. And when the time has come, the king arises from his throne. And he goes and he makes good on the promise that he has made with his wife. And he redeems his bride out of the house of rebellion and into his glorious kingdom to live with him. And naturally, if you're thinking redemptively, the next thing you'll see is a feast, a feast of celebration. And that is indeed what we see in verse 20, where we read that Abner, when he came with his 20 men to David at Hebron, and we can sort of, it implies here that Michael, David's bride, is with him because David had said, you won't see my face until you bring my wife when you come. And so they come with Michael and all these 20 men back to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. So in the midst of all this dysfunction and wickedness among the houses of Saul and David, David seeks to rise above it all. He honors his enemies. He seeks the Lord for his purposes. Unlike these cruel opportunists that he's surrounded by who just lie in wait, waiting for an opportunity to exact revenge or find their, their power in slaying another person. He is patient on the, waiting on the Lord. And while Joab and Abishai and all the people with them are pursuing peace by wicked means, David is pursuing peace by redeeming his beloved bride. And if you think David is wonderful, consider how wonderful Jesus is. Consider the one who is greater than David, your king, who shed not the blood of a hundred or two hundred Philistines, but his own precious blood, compelled by love for you, not out of conquest, out of love for you. His bride, he sealed an everlasting covenant that cannot be undone. Having satisfied the eternal price of your redemption, paying a double portion, if you will, he has now physically gone away for a time, and yet when the fullness of time has come, he has prepared a place for you in his kingdom. He will rise from his throne and come again in glory, and he will redeem that which is rightfully purchased by his own blood, you and me, and he will take us 
into His throne room. And we'll celebrate forevermore at the Feast of the Lamb. It's beautiful, it's glorious that in the midst of all this violence and awful treachery, your King seeks and pursues you out of love. And in light of that promise then, I think it tells us something of how we're to live. Not as those in the world who deal falsely with one another, but as those who have hope in a Savior who is our King and is coming again to take us and be part of His greater kingdom. But the treachery isn't over in this story because then we continue to read in verse 21 that Abner said to David, I will arise and I'll go and I will gather all of Israel to my Lord the King that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. And just then, the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he's let him go, and he's gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you've sent him away so that he's gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. See, out of his bitterness against Abner, Joab questions the king's decisions, and then he even goes the next step further, as we read, and undermines the king's plans with his own agenda. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner. You know the guy the king had just sent away in peace? Well, Joab takes it back. They brought him back from the cistern of Sirah, and David, the king, did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Azahel, his brother. It's significant that he pulled him into the midst of the gates. There was the structure of the gates was such that he was able to hide away in them. And it's also significant because judicial cases were tried at the city gates. This was where elders would deliberate over the guilt and innocence of cases that were brought before them. And so there's no doubt that Abner is brought into this structure by Joab, so to speak, to pass judgment on him, and one that in Joab's mind was not only righteous, but something that he was probably quite proud of that he himself, that he thought that David himself wasn't, un, wasn't willing to do. He exacts what he believes is justice on this man, but in reality, the Lord was already at work between Abner and David. But Joab was so blinded by his own agenda, by his own bitterness, by what he saw as an opportunity, that he failed to see it and he took matters into his own hands. And as a result, these specific plans between Abner and David never materialized. The unification of this kingdom will have to wait for another time. And with it, an increased suspicion, uh, an increase in the tensions politically between Israel and Judah. Because think of it, I mean, Israel has sent the captain of their army to negotiate peace with Judah, and he turns up murdered. And not only murdered, but when the murderer is found out, he's not punished. He gets away with it. David pronounces 
a curse of disease and war and famine on Joab and his house. He says that after he found out, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And then he pronounces this curse on Joab. And it says there in verse 30 that Joab and Abishai, uh, his brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Azahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. David weeps and mourns and he fasts and prays as he, as he mourns the loss of this man, just as he did at the death of Saul. And then David does pronounce a, an awful curse of disease and famine and war on the house of Joab. But what David should have pronounced was a sentence of death. Again, remembering what he did to the Amalekite youth that came victorious saying, Saul is dead. The Lord has vindicated the king. The, his fate was death. It was execution. And that was the just and righteous reward for the one who has laid his hands on this man. And David, for whatever reason, was unwilling to exercise his authority in that regard. He pronounces a curse, but not judgment. And that failure to sort of subdue the unruly Joab will go with him throughout the reign of his kingdom. And interestingly, Solomon, David's son and successor to the throne, does actually follow through and do what David didn't hear and puts Joab to death. And so that's the close of scene two. Are we feeling happy yet? Man, that's the close of scene two. Scene one was Azahel. He, was, he died by a blow to the stomach with two brothers seeking vengeance. Scene two, Abner now has died with a blow to the stomach at the hand of two brothers seeking vengeance. Are you seeing that pattern? Because it's about to repeat yet a third time. And in the midst of it, we can see that the Lord is fighting for David that the Lord has taken up His cause and is eliminating obstacle after obstacle after obstacle to put David on the throne. One member of the house of Saul remains as an obstacle now, and the Lord is about to remove him too. In chapter 4 we read that when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, the king of Israel, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Baana, and the name of the other, Rechab. And briefly, it'll help make the rest of this scene make some sense if you know the background of this family. It's very likely, historically, that the Berethites fled from their hometown because of a, an attack that Saul executed against their hometown in Gibeon. And so, these are exiles. Berethites are exiles because of something that the house of Saul has done against them. And so here are two brothers, once again, Rechab and Baana, seeking vengeance on the house of Saul because of the attack that he carried out against their city and their forced exile from their homeland. And when we read in verse 5 about the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab and Baana, it says, they set out and about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. 
And then the author backs up as though that wasn't graphic enough. He wants to fill in some detail. He wants to give you a little more color. And so he says that when they came into that house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And again, it's reminding us of what happened when Saul was put to death. The Amalekite youth came not with his head, but with his crown and his bracelet and says, look, celebrating, the king is dead. Now, David, the king is vindicated. And so these two brothers, like that Amalekite youth, came to David and said, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord, the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Ba'ana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, as the Lord lives, he's, he's taking an oath, this is a way of vowing, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for this news. How much more then? When wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? He's exacting his his justice, the authority that is his as the king. And David commanded his young men, and they killed him and cut off their hands and feet, the instruments used in the carrying out of their crime. And he hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. And in this rather difficult text, full of a lot of violence, a lot of strange things happening, we see three patterns. We see a pattern three times carried out as a hell. He died by a blow to the stomach, vengeance of two brothers. Abner died by a blow to the stomach at the hand of two brothers seeking vengeance. Ishbosheth died by a blow to the stomach at the hand of two brothers. And we see this cycle over and over again. And all this is meant to teach us, I think, is that this is how the kingdoms of the earth are established. This is the way the world, in its own right, in its own vision for justice, seeks to lay claim to what the Lord even has has promised. And this, however, is not how the kingdom of God is established. And the Lord is sending that message very clearly by placing in the midst of all of this treachery, this beautiful story of the redemption of a bride, that our king is not seeking the conquest of nations so much as he is seeking out for himself a precious bride whom he has purchased with his own blood. And if you include in this list of three deaths the story of Saul, a couple of other things come to light. First, we see again that the Lord is removing obstacle after obstacle. One by one, the house of Saul is falling at the hand of these wicked men and yet not escaping the sovereign hand of the Lord. One by one, the Lord is removing obstacles for David to be king. And secondly, as you consider Saul, you remember that David had executed their, his assassin. Likewise, David executed Ishbosheth's assassin. And so in the middle, there's this murder of Abner and the murderer, Joab. Well, David failed. David failed to execute judgment on this man. And we can speculate on the reasons why, whether he was 
being loyal to his own blood, being that Joab was his nephew, or whether he was delegating in some sense the right of judgment to Yahweh. Whatever the reason, the Lord had given him the king authority over such matters, and that failure is really a tragic one. And I, and I say that again because there are a lot of Joabs in our world, and what I don't mean by that is there are a lot of people we need to go put to death. Thanks. What I do mean by that is the spirit of Joab is in each of us, and it rears his ugly head every now and then. And we are surrounded not, nonetheless by opportunistic companions in this life who just find their way by treachery and falsehood to, to reach their way to the top. And we're surrounded by Joabs in, the, in this world. And I think that's one of the reasons that this, these kinds of stories are there in the Bible. It's the world that we wake up to every day. You know, you may not hear on the news tonight of someone getting run through with a spear in his stomach coming out his back. Nonetheless, my goodness, is this world operating under the purposes of the Lord and sort of looking to Him and His interests? Are they operating as those who love one another and seek His purposes and the establishment of His kingdom? No, we wake up every morning to a world of treachery, of darkness. There are people in this world who need Jesus. And we who have Christ all the more so need to shine in the midst of this and say, we have a hope in a king who will not fail. His kingdom will have no end. And he pursues you out of love for you, his bride. And so first we learn from this passage, I think, that we're not to lose heart. It can get really grim and despairing if you look around. The state of our government, the state of our world, at the state even of our own hearts in the church. But I think first we learn from this passage that no matter how dark the surrounding world may get, we cannot ever lose hope in our King because He's coming again. He is coming to restore to Himself by whom He's purchased with His blood. Secondly, I think we learn from Joab what can happen if grief isn't dealt with honestly. You know, I, I think it's very justifiable in Joab's case to grieve. I mean, Lord knows if I saw my brother run through with a spear the way Joab saw his brother die, I'd have questions of the Lord's justice. I'd have sort of dark questions. God, how could you let this happen? And I would grieve. I would mourn. I think he's justified in his grief, however, Grief that doesn't work itself out of your soul in the form of rending your garments humbly before your king has opportunity then to dig its roots deep into your heart. And from there, it springs up into this tree. And you know what fruit that grief then produces? It's called bitterness. Bitterness is grief that's taken root in your heart that hasn't been humbly left at the altar that hasn't been laid before your king in the way that David grieves, ripping his garments, laying face first on the ground before the Lord, crying his bitterness, his weeping, his grief out to him. And so I would encourage you that bitterness can blind you to the purposes of the Lord 
can suck the life out of you, rob you of your joy, your peace, your contentment, which is yours in the Holy Spirit. And so I would urge you to deal with grief honestly and righteously before the Lord. And finally, I think this passage is a word of warning. It's a reminder that the Lord has set under your authority certain things. First of all, yourself, your own soul. How do you guard the gates of your own heart and mind? What do you put before your eyes? What do you put into your heart and in your, in your mind? To guard your own soul. To have self-mastery, self-control. To grieve righteously and put to death that unruly spirit of Joab that seeks to take yours by whatever means necessary to, to put him to peace under the governance of the Lord. Over your family, you have authority, especially you heads of the house in the room. It is a tragic consequence if you delegate that responsibility to the Lord, to Yahweh. And by that I mean saying, well, the Lord will raise my kid and teach him, and and in a good time, he will come around. I think we learn from David's example uh, in not dealing with Joab, the thorn in his flesh that continues with him in his reign teaches us that Yes, the Lord is sovereign sovereign over all things. And yes, the Lord will bring your child around according to His purposes and His ordained will. But He has put you in authority. He has taught you the way in His Word to raise children in the fear of the Lord. And so it's a humbling and a sobering responsibility to raise kids. We want to raise them to be like the house of David and not like the house of Saul. At work, whatever and whoever is under your charge, you're to deal compassionately and graciously with them, but you're not to give one moment, one foothold for sin and and false dealing. We should not tolerate sin. We should not tolerate dissension or treachery, but to lovingly lead those under your authority. And finally, All of you are stewards of material things as well. You know, you can spend money in such a way that it owns you. You can have possessions in such a way that it owns you. But again, your authority in Jesus' name is to subdue the idol of monetary gain, of material things. Your authority is to spend that money well, to spend your resources, time, money, and talent, to spend those resources as good stewards for God's purposes, which implies what? That you're going to seek Him, that you're going to go to Him and say, Lord, what would you have me to do with this? And this, I do think, is the gesture of worship. The raising of hands is not a, ooh, this is a great part of the song. This is the gesture of worship. Holy Spirit, all that I am, all that I have is Yours. Would You make me a faithful steward of it? Would You show me Your purposes? And so with that in mind, let's ask Him if He would do that. Would would You bow Your heads in prayer and we'll pray together and ask that the Lord would make us a people who never lose our hope because we know and have our eyes fixed on the one true King. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank You for these brutal stories, Lord. We cringe when we read them because it seems so foreign to our ears. And yet, we recognize that in so many ways, this is the world we wake up to every morning. And that You have furthermore called us to be light in that darkness. Those who share the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, into the midst of such treachery. So we pray, Lord, that You would embolden us by Your Spirit. Fix our eyes, Lord, on Christ Jesus, our King, who has saved us, who's purchased us and covenanted with a, with a promise that will not fail to return us, Lord, into Your presence and Your kingdom forevermore. And we know even now, Lord, that Your Holy Spirit is with us, and so with Him and in Him we do pray that You'd teach us to grieve righteously. Lord, whatever we have felt bereft of, whatever suffering we've endured, we do pray, Holy Spirit, that You'd guard us from letting it take root in our heart and to produce bitterness that blinds us to Your purposes. And finally, Lord, we ask that You'd give us authority over these things that You've placed under our care. That You would make us good stewards, not only of the material things, but good stewards in our homes, in our workplaces, and over our own lives. That we would govern carefully over the affairs of our own souls. Holy Spirit, we need Your help and Your blessing to do this. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.